I'm joined by Mike Brown, energy systems design engineer and host of the 3P Theory podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Mike. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. That's awesome. And where are you taking this call from? Uh, I'm actually in Dallas right now, Dallas, Texas. Um, nice. So it's uh, a little bit colder than I would expect, but uh, we're supposed to be in the 20s. Uh, and that's uh, Fahrenheit wow. uh, later this week. So, <laughs> is that normal? Uh, not really. I mean, it's it's kind of sporadic in in Jul- or in January and February. But yeah, uh, I don't know we're moving into March, so hopefully we should be done with most of that here pretty soon. Oh man, I did not realize it gets that cold in Texas. Yeah, that is <laughs> cold. Wow. Well, I'm based in London, and we, yeah, we. 20 degrees Fahrenheit is, uh, that's very rare. That doesn't happen here very often. So I'm, uh, I'm surprised. But one thing, as I was, as I was reading about um, the work that you do as uh, an energy engineer, um, I, I just came across this interesting st- statistic that 54% of all people on earth live in cities. Uh, so more than half. And then the UN is projecting that by 2050, it'll be 66%. So that's like, a big sizable chunk and cities, yeah. at least the way I picture them, um, there's, it's basically just a bunch of buildings everywhere. Um, and so that's a big part of what you do really as an energy, energy engineer, I understand, right? You focus on buildings. Is that kind of uh, correct? C- correct? Yeah. Um, and they may not necessarily all be in urban spaces per se, but right. um, obviously a lot of the new developments that are coming online or even retrofits of existing buildings do happen, um, you know, predominantly in urban areas yeah, yeah. Uh, or even just growing cities that are, are going to become more urbanized. So That's cool. So what exactly is an energy engineer? I mean, it sounds kind of like something that a superhero might do. Like you engineer <laughs> energy. <laughs> like, how cool is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I guess just for clarification, so I'm not necessarily doing um, design. Okay. Uh, per se. However, uh, in the context of, I guess, you, as you would say, maybe a high level or general terms of being an energy engineer yeah. is quite frankly someone that focuses on, uh, I guess, the energy aspects. Uh, it could be buildings. It could be, um, you know, other aspects within um, other industries that are related to energy. Uh, but specifically for me, uh, it is buildings. Um, and really, a lot of what we do is energy analysis and or water analysis for buildings to evaluate how much they're going to consume uh, prior to them actually being built uh, and finding ways to optimize uh, through collaboration on the architecture side, uh, the contracting side, and even with the MEP engineers and mechanical, uh, electrical, lighting, and plumbing side of things as well yeah. um, for different systems alternatives and how we can really elevate uh, the design of that particular building not only from an aesthetic standpoint, uh, but also from a, a functional performance standpoint. How do you, um, how can you predict how much energy and water is going <laughs> to, I mean, isn't that kind of based on like the people inside? Uh, yes. So, um, you know, people do have the same question and they, they kind of yeah. wonder, you know, it's like, do you have like this, you know, magic globe or something that you can just like predict? Um, yeah. I wish it were that easy to be honest. Um, <laughs> However, you know, there are various standards that are in place. Um, and here in the United States, you know, we have ASHRAE um, and even IECC for International Energy, I'm sorry, uh, International Energy Conservation Code. 
mm-hmm. uh, to set standards for what assumptions can be made for buildings, whether it be oh, through occupancy, through schedules. Um, and we always use that as a starting point uh, or a baseline, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as the design progresses, we start to infuse that information. Uh, but again, as you kind of alluded to it, uh, building occupancy and fluctuations in occupancy, even knowing the building type, uh, if it's just going to be office or just going to be you know, hotel, uh, varies quite widely compared to what assumptions are, um, which yeah, that's probably one of the greatest variabilities within energy modeling uh, is, is scheduling and, and occupancy. Um, so I know we're, oh, go ahead. I was just thinking that, so that would be like, if, um, like you, you would assume that a building is maybe 80% full, but it's actually only 50% full or it's at capacity. And so you kind of have to like, is it, is it like you have to sort of take a range saying, I think that it's going to be using this much energy based on some sort of level of, uh, um, I guess like plus minus certain amount of percentage <laughs> or something. So from an occupancy standpoint, so we know what the peak amount, um, and this is defined by the building code, what the peak amount of individuals are going to be in the building, whether that's right. visitors, full-time occupants. And from there, we usually create profiles uh, that are typical, and ASHRAE defines, along with other standards, define what that is. Mm-hmm. And so you're taking basically a percentage of the peak for every hour of the day. So think about maybe a typical you know, multifamily project. You have a much higher um, peak occupancy in the morning when people are there getting ready for work, getting yep. ready to leave, then it's going to taper off during the midday and then until they come back home from work, then it's going to mm-hmm. go back up again. And so similarly, the HVAC lighting and even service hot water heating kind of follow that similar profile. Yep. Uh, and then they're just percentages of, of that peak. Um, so for instance, if you say that, you know, for a lighting power density or a lighting design for an interior space has a maximum power, if we turned on all the lights of this number, you know, at that particular hour, we're assuming a certain percentage of that peak power. Got it. I see. So. Well, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, it sounds very yeah. mathematical. <laughs> <laughs> Calculations and things. <laughs> um, that's cool. So I guess part of what you're doing um, is, because uh, I, I read this term, high-performance buildings. So does that, that takes into account basically how this energy is being used or what exactly is a high-performance building? Sure. Um, so I'm glad you used the word high-performance building as opposed to green building. Okay. Um, some would say those are synonymous, and, and, and to some degree they are. Uh, but high-performance building really encompasses, encompasses a lot more than just energy and water efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a little bit later we're going to talk about um, uh, biophilia and things of yeah, nature yeah. That, that relate to the uh, occupant comfort and things of that nature. Uh, but it includes things like daylighting and how uh, the quality of daylighting and access to daylighting you have in the space, uh, along with things like air quality, so on and so forth. Uh, but really, and there's a definition here that uh, I've kind of developed, um, just kind of a compilation of things, is really being able to optimize and have integration for all of the systems in the building so that it performs at a high level of comfort, but also at a low environmental impact. Mm. Um, and so you, you basically have to look at the macro and the micro when you're trying to evaluate a building, uh, and the systems that are involved with that. Um, and so really ultimately, if you do that correctly, you'll be able to achieve some operational savings and then maximize on those tenants or those occupants that are going to be in that space in terms of, uh, how well they, 
they have that occupant experience. Yeah. So what's what's the why why don't you like the term green buildings or what's the why were you <laughs> glad I said high performance? Uh, I think in some ways there's some negative connotation or uh, there's some some siloing of certain aspects of of the building, like I mentioned before. So only focusing on energy and things of that nature and you know, until the more recent um, uh, or in, in more recent years has been kind of the focus until now there's been a shift to look at more of those. Uh, I don't want to say soft um, aspects of mm-hmm. building design, but they do have a quantifiable impact on the occupants of the building and the building itself. And that can be rolled into even the building valuation when you're looking at it from a real estate standpoint uh, and how much they could potentially uh, resell that building for by those um, uh, aspects. Um, and then even from a um, from a tenant retention standpoint uh, as well, if we're talking about an office building yeah. or a building that a retail building that has tenants and and having those stakeholders be in that space long term because of some of those benefits. I gotcha. So green buildings basically typically just focus on one or two things like um, how well it I guess retains heat or cool inside the building. So meaning like you're going to have to use less electricity to heat and cool the building. Whereas a high performance building would take into account basically everything inside, um, including how comfortable people are and how happy they are to be inside the building. Um, basically it's like, it's almost like geometrical growth in all areas. It's, it's, performing at peak rather than just like being electrical, really good at using electricity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I would say to use those same words and the same definition are okay, but I just think the perception of green building I see. is, is what you mentioned earlier. So, um, and so that's why high performance has been come, become one of more of the, the terms that are used uh, in the industry just to kind of have a holistic standpoint yeah. uh, of the of facility. That's really cool. So what is, um, cause I, I know that you're, uh, you're lead certified. Uh, lead accredited. Yes. Lead accredited. Yeah. Sorry. Uh-huh. Um, so <laughs> lead accredited. And I've seen this before and I know that there's different tiers of accreditation. Um, because that's basically lead is essentially how sustainable, environmentally sustainable a building is like, that's like the most basic definition. Yeah. Basically. That, yeah. So, I mean, what is what actually is lead? Because I mean, that's about the in depth of my knowledge of it. So, how? Um, I, because I, I've seen some lead buildings that are like platinum certified, and and I think that's the highest you can go. Um, so, what exactly is lead? Uh, so, lead is leadership in energy and environmental design. Right. And so, um, this was a certification rating system that was developed. Uh, by USGBC, GBCI, uh, mm-hmm. around different aspects that would qualify a building as high-performing or sustainable or okay. green there's in a way that yeah. it can be more or less quantifiable. Uh, and there's different sections. So there's one on transportation and linkages, sustainable sites, water efficiency, energy uh, efficiency, uh, indoor environmental quality, mm-hmm. uh, materials and resources, and then there's also uh, an innovations uh, section as well. So for teams wow. that are doing things that are above and beyond, uh, they can actually be rewarded uh, for that. That's cool. Um, yeah, and so within that rating system, like most rating systems, uh, there's points for each of those. And if you're able to claim those points, they all add up to the different levels um, 
whether it's certified silver, gold, or platinum for for lead. That's cool. So, and then uh, the points who who awards those points? I mean, how do the um? So you, I, I'm guessing there's someone that comes by from the lead council or something and and takes <laughs> yeah. a look at. So yeah, it is a a third party verified. Um, uh, rating system, yeah, and I think that's why the adoption, uh, at least in recent years, has been uh, has been so well and has grown so much. Uh, just because you do have a third party that is reviewing your design to make sure that those attributes are included. Um, but at a very high level, what happens is uh, the design team for that particular project. This is inclusive of architecture, uh, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, uh, landscape, civil, uh, and even structural in some cases. Uh, to make sure that the calculations and documentation uh, is there mm -hmm. claiming those credits. Uh, and then all that information is sent off to GBCI uh, for review. Um, and, you know, once that review comes back, there may be comments that you have to address, uh, and then you may have to do a resubmission, uh, or, which I haven't seen it yet, um, you get all your points the first time around, and you don't have to do any, um, any resubmittals. But... Um, Usually there's different the interpretations. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because um, what's been really great about LEED um, in recent years is that it's moved away from just being exclusive to office buildings and facilities. Uh, and that's originally where it started uh, to encompass other building types uh, like hospitality and hotels, oh, wow. uh, multifamily, uh, retail, even data centers um, and warehouses, things of that nature uh, that would be uh, that would more or less tweak some of the credits that are more in alignment with that particular building type. Um, so for instance, one of the ones that I, I come across pretty, pretty frequently is on healthcare projects uh, for projects that are receiving the daylighting credit uh, before they made the lead for healthcare um, along with some of the addendums or changes in the language. Um, for daylighting, it included all of the core spa spaces as well in mm. terms of counting against you because you didn't have access to daylight. However, in the new version, they only account for the perimeter rooms or spaces, which makes sense, right? Um, because what, typically what would be by like nature... A, yeah. What would be an example of that? I think you're about to get, get into that. Yeah, typ typically by nature, uh, hospitals have a pretty deep floor plate. Um, What's a floor plate? Uh, oh, just the, the, the floor area of yeah. just the, the floor. Okay. Um, for each of the levels. So whether it's a, you know, 10 story bed tower, or maybe if it's a two story um, healthcare facility, mm -hmm. uh, those floor plates or the depth from one side of the building to the other side of the building are pretty, gotcha. pretty drastic. And so yeah. you can only get so much daylight into the space, mm -hmm. even if you were to have, you know, floor to ceiling glass kind of thing. Yeah. It can only uh, go so far. Yeah. Yeah. And so by nature, the rating system identified that as a means to say, Hey, well, you know, these projects aren't able to achieve this in any scenario just based on typical programming for a healthcare facility mm -hmm. and the way operations work and the way the design is. And so they tweaked that particular credit to allow for just focusing on the perimeter areas where it makes sense that you would have windows anyway to see if you're able to achieve the daylight quality that's needed. Got it. So what you're saying, I get it because um, before I was like, the daylight needed to get into the center of the of the building or the floor plate, <laughs> and in some buildings that's just not possible. And so they're they're being adjusted, so it's actually uh, it makes sense for like a hospital versus a um, uh, versus an office building where you'd want daylight everywhere. Right. 
That's really cool. And so, so what what does it mean that you're lead accredited then? Um, so with that, um, and so for me in particular, it's uh, for new construction or NC uh, BD plus C, which is for building design and construction. Mm -hmm. And um, that just means that when I took the certification exam, it's particularly focused on that rating system um, for my particular knowledge base. Uh, that's not saying that I'd, I'm not aware of the requirements and some of the uh, language around other rating systems uh, within LEED, whether that be for commercial interiors or, like I mentioned before, for healthcare, hospitality, so on and so forth. Uh, it's really, you know, the people that have those designations for those um, um, different, um, sorry, rating systems uh, just shows you that they're more privy and are super experts in that area. Um, and up until recently, um, and I, they still have this in the newer version, is for the people that have the accreditation, you can actually claim a point uh, on your, um, in your, in your submission for the rating system if you have a lead professional on the project. Um, oh, cool. So for instance, if you didn't have one, that would be one less point that you could achieve for the rating system. So maybe in some uh, in some projects that could get you from like silver to gold, just that extra point. Or is it, or is it not it, that? It could, but we, we try not to, to be that close okay. <laughs> on the line. <laughs> we always like to have a, a couple of buffer points just because uh, you're not sure what's going to happen in the review process uh, where you may lose, you know, two or even three in some cases uh, to just have that buffer just to okay. be on the safe side. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, so with... Um, with your lead accredita accreditation, basically what you're able to do is to design the way that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but design the way that energy is used within a building that would fall within lead standards. Um, I, I would say from a design standpoint, we aren't necessarily designing, but we are facilitators of mm -hmm. the design. Um, and so where we see a misalignment that is not necessarily meeting the requirement based on the language of that particular credit that they're trying to pursue, uh, then that's when we step up and say, well, hey, we need to redesign this, or maybe we decide not to go for that credit and go for something that's uh, more cost effective or economical for the project. Mm -hmm. uh, because for projects that are really trying to achieve higher levels of certification, which is typically gold and beyond, um, I would say for the majority, at least of of the areas that have more recent energy codes uh, here locally are probably going to automatically hit certified, if not silver in some cases, okay. um, just based on an energy code uh, and somewhat based on location as well. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you were to, you know, pick up one of these buildings here downtown and drop it somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, then it would be a challenge for it to to get the certification there because a lot of the location transportation and sustainable <laughs> sites credits are hinged on the location oh, uh, of the facility. Uh, so what it does, what that does is it promotes, you know, developers, owners, and, and builders to design in areas that promote walkability, uh, that promote connection to other diverse uses and services so that it minimizes the need for, um, for cars and things of that nature, so you can use alternative transportation, uh, essentially. Well, that's cool. That's interesting that they actually factor in how you get to the building mm -hmm. into the into the accreditation, I, or into the um, certification. I didn't really 
consider that part at all. But it, I mean, it does make sense because if you're looking at it from an environmental standpoint, you'd want to be able to get to the building without needing to drive or have any sort of environmental um, impact really to, right. uh, yeah. That's cool. Another, one I'll, another yeah. one I'll bring up, which you may have heard of, and the, there was a lot of skepticism um, <laughs> around it prior to them making the change with the the more recent version of lead is with the bike rack credit. If you've bike heard of that credit. before. <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, so right. there is a credit. Um, and before it was um, in the sustainable sites uh, section where basically you could get a, a point for just putting bike racks out in front of the building based on the number of occupants or percentage of occupants you have for the building. I see. And so the problem with that is if you have, say maybe even if it's a manufacturing facility, which for one, more than likely those people aren't going to be biking to work. Yeah. But manufacturing city or manufacturing uh, facilities by nature are probably not going to be in the city center. Uh, they're going to exactly. maybe in the warehouse district or somewhere else where people have to drive. Um, and then also with that, um, in the newer version, what they've done so people can't just it's it's it was, it was basically a freebie before. Yeah. Uh, but now people can't do that because not only do you have to have the, the quantity of bike racks out front, uh, but you also have to have, which this was in the old version, uh, showers as well. So from people, when they travel to the site, they're sweaty, they have an opportunity at least to try and take a shower or wash themselves up. Uh, what they added in the new version is, in addition to those two things, you also have to be located near a bike bicycle network. Um, uh, okay. So it basically has to have a bike path or a network near your building for you to even claim that. So in rural America, highly unlikely that you'll have a bike network out there like that. Yeah. So uh, it made it much more challenging for those people to get that credit, which for the intent, it makes sense. Yeah. So that's a clever way of doing it to be connected to a bike network. I'm not sure if I would have thought of that. Um, like, like that's a, that's such a straightforward and obvious <laughs> uh, like you have to be next to a place where it's easy to bike in order to be able yeah. to claim a bike credit. <laughs> not really fair. Like I'm just going to put some bike racks in the back where no one can see them. They're out of the way and uh, yeah. just get a point for that and uh, <laughs> be on my way. Um, you, you mentioned earlier um, the term HVAC and I know we, we kind of touched on this bef before when we were talking uh, earlier, but what, is HVAC because I've seen it um, that term before, and um, I've never really understood what it means. But it seems like it's an important part of what you do. Uh, yeah, I would I would say so. Um, so with HVAC, uh, that's essentially heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, so it it, it focuses pr focuses primarily on the mechanical systems of the building. So how are you getting in ventilation to the space? Uh, also, how are you heating and cooling the space? Uh, whether that's through electric heat, uh, natural gas, uh, fossil fuels, things of that nature, um, and the types of strategies uh, for the different system types that are used in the building. Um, so typically for certain buildings uh, and in a lot of the ASHRAE standards and ICC standards, uh, they have uh, definitions of what typical HVAC systems are used based on the building square footage and also based on the number of floors. And so you can always use that as a starting point. But then on top of that, there's an efficiency threshold that needs to be met for any of those system types. And so when we talk about ways to optimize or enhance uh, uh, the building performance, 
that is a means uh, of doing that by either choosing a more efficient system type uh, and or uh, efficiency for that system. Uh, because even if you were to look, say, at maybe uh, chillers, um, whether it be water-cooled or air-cooled, there's a range of efficiencies. And mm. typically, that's based on the, the tonnage or cooling capacity that's required for the building. Um, so it's really important um, very early on to just understand not only what's applicable for that particular building, uh, but also from a programming standpoint, what makes sense. Because uh, oftentimes, when those systems are being compared, and this this really goes the same for a lot of um, energy conservation measures, is that when you're trying to compare apples to apples yeah. for one system over another or one strategy over another, people tend to always look at it from a one-sided one standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll give you an example of that. So even in a scenario where you're looking at comparing two uh, HVAC system types, um, Obviously, one of the uh, opportunities would be you'd be able to save operationally on energy cost, right? Yep. Uh, another uh, thing, which again, that's why it's so important to look at the synergies amongst different strategies, um, is looking at what the peak cooling capacity could be for the facility as well. Um, that's going to dictate the sizing of that system, how much HVAC closet space it's going to take up compared mm -hmm. to the other system, uh, especially for uh, smaller buildings or buildings that may be um, that may have other buildings overlooking them is understanding okay well what do we want our roof to look like are we trying to do a terrace up there or is it okay to put mechanical equipment up there and, and for it to be kind of cluttered not cluttered but you know taking up that roof space yeah uh, sometimes that's okay sometimes it's not so evaluating that uh, and then also looking at you know from a maintenance standpoint the maintenance costs associated mm -hmm. with that particular system versus the other um, and I'm not going to get into like the occupant comfort, but that's a whole nother realm or piece that you can look at too when you're evaluating that, especially when you're looking at different uh, glazing system types uh, for the envelope or even insulation for that matter, because uh, that, that drives all of those numbers. Wow. And so, the, I mean, the more, so I guess a big part of what, what's really interesting about building efficiency, I'm, I think, and this is occurring to me as you're speaking, is that the more efficient the building is, which is good for the environment, um, but it, it ends up actually saving money as well, because the less you need to heat and cool the building, like you're, you're mentioning the glazing and the insulation, the, mm -hmm. the more effective that, that, the, that those are, um, the less you need to turn on the heating and air conditioning. So it's like, um, yeah, you, don't, you end up spending less money and you use less energy. Exactly. So you have some first cost savings and then operational savings as well. So, wow, cool. That's um, yeah. I, I, that's one thing I, I really love about uh, sustainability and and everything I'm learning about it is the fact that the more um, what I'm seeing as a trend is like the more sustainable you are from an environmental standpoint, the more you actually end up being financially sustainable as well. It's like, oh yeah. Oftentimes they really go hand in hand, and it's like pretty direct too. I mean, it's like we're saying here, you use less energy, good for the environment, good for the bottom line because you end up spending less. Right, right. It, it makes it a really the, obvious choice. Yeah. The one thing I would point out about that is that, um, you know, oftentimes in certain regions, um, and, and I'm speaking more specifically to the United States, mm -hmm. uh, where say maybe energy is cheap or water is cheap, yeah. makes it a little bit harder to make that sale. However, all that means is you have to craft or tailor the message a different way. 
Um, so as opposed to maybe focusing on the operational side, maybe you could focus on the front um, the front end cost savings if that's a, a concern for that particular developer to try and you know build for the least cost kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but then also when you look at it from an occupant standpoint, who's going to be occupying that space, there's a value added to them. And so how how you tailor the conversation of how do we extract that value uh, is going to be critical for mm-hmm. whoever that building owner or manager is. Yeah, that's a good point. So on that um, about the the well being and the health of the occupants, because that's I mean buildings really do, at least from my understanding, they can really impact human health, right? And so that's um that's a really big part of the consideration. What what are some of the things that like how how can buildings impact human health? So uh, you kind of alluded to it. Um, so we do spend a huge amount of time. Uh, or a huge amount of our time in in buildings. Yeah. Um, based on the statistics, it's about ninety percent of our time that we spend um, in our lifetime indoors. That's uh, whether crazy. that's at work or at home, uh, I don't know, retail store, so on and so forth. Do uh, cars count so indoors? Uh, I I th- I think so. I may have to go back and look at that now. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling that you would say that, but um, <laughs> you're right because that's a significant portion of people are commuting long. You know, hour, two-hour yeah. drive. That's yeah, that adds up. It's a twelfth of your um, day potentially. <laughs> two hours yeah. in the car. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. That's a lot. So ninety. Um, 90 sorry, cut you off there. Ninety percent indoors. Yeah. So so ninety percent indoors, and you know, I can send the graphic to you uh, after the call. But um, if we look at all the things that impact our health, uh, typically people always focus on you know, exercising and they focus on uh, maybe even genetics and things of that nature. But the largest portion that really impacts your health is your environment. Mm. So that's indoor, outdoor environment. Uh, it's over 50%. So, you know, if you did all you could do from an exercise standpoint, yeah, good genetics, the largest percentage of the pie that impacts your overall well-being and your probability for well-being is your environment. Mm. And so with that ideology, the intent is that from a design standpoint, uh, whether it's for a renovation or even for a new construction project, that we focus on the elements uh, like biophilia, like air quality, like water quality, or even access to, 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 to clean water, mm-hmm. um, even in, develop, in a developed country, um, for the interior of the space is to really maximize so that you can bring out the, the greatest uh, productivity of those individuals in that space. Uh, and so they feel better as well. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of discount the long-term effects of poor air quality mm-hmm. um, inside buildings. Um, you know, how uh, ventilation in ASHRAE 62.1 and things of that nature uh, came about is sick building syndrome. So there wasn't enough fresh air being brought into the building. And so people were getting uh, sick. And so that's why they started introducing standards for minimum levels of outside air to be able to dilute the space of all of the chemicals, you know, uh, and things of that nature, CO2 in the space as well, uh, by, you know, just breathing. Yeah. Um, and, and so with that, just being able to, to, to be mindful from a design standpoint of how can we maximize all those different areas, even lighting, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, is another category that people often um, uh, discount. Um, you know, granted from an aesthetic point, you know, there's various ways you can design to have great lighting, um, different color rend- rendering indexes and things of that nature. Um, 
but one of the things that's starting to emerge now is uh, circadian uh, lighting design, which is essentially kind of mimics the circadian rhythm uh, of our natural uh, flow or state uh, as we perceive light and then also uh, as our body responds to that. Um, so mm -hmm. naturally, as the sun goes up, the sun goes down, um, in a normal state without artificial light, your body um, decreases or increases melatonin so that right. you know what time it is, what time it is to go to sleep, what time it is to wake up, so on and so forth, which also impacts other biological uh, functions as well. But mm -hmm. being able to design lighting indoors that somewhat mimics that so that uh, people are are healthier and more productive as well. That's crazy. How do you how do you I mean, how do you imitate that or how do you how do you get close to even mimicking that? So, yeah, so technology now, especially with the emergence of LED lighting, um, has allowed um, lighting manufacturers uh, to create fixtures uh, that are more or less tunable uh, to be able to go from that warmer color mm -hmm. to, you know, the colder color uh, to be able to have that variation in the light. Uh, and so oftentimes this is really, really beneficial to people who are night shift workers yeah. that are the exact opposite of what they need to be consuming from a, a natural daylight standpoint. And so that's why you hear about, you know, those individuals having poor sleep quality and things of nature, um, not to mention you know, just normal working quality and productivity uh, being decreased as well. Uh, but also that coupled with air quality increases your chance for heart disease as well uh, and other ailments. So again, this a lot of these things, uh, and I think that's why it's been, um, people have been paying more attention to it now is because there's been a lot more studies uh, that have been done to to validate some of this mm -hmm. uh, because it's something that happens over time. It's not necessarily something that, oh, okay, if I'm in this poor space now, I'm going to feel it before the end of the week. In some cases, that if it's extreme, that could be the case, but it's um, it's kind of the chronic uh, development of those, uh, or of being in those poor quality spaces that starts to develop those um, uh, risk factors if you will. yeah and it's amazing too because it's like i mean for someone like me where i mean you can obviously tell i'm not an expert even remotely close to anything related to buildings i would never be able to tell by walking into a space whether or not it's good for my health i mean you know i can walk in and if it smells really damp and it's like oh wow this is but you know like that has to be a really bad but like if you know going into an office building i'm just thinking like you know I kind of have a headache here, but maybe it's just <laughs> not enough coffee. And uh, that's just the way it is because it's a Wednesday kind of a thing or a Tuesday. And, you know, but it's like the long-term effects, like you're saying, you would, I would never actually think, well, maybe it's because not enough airflow quality in here and not enough, uh, not enough proper lighting or the lighting is too intense and, you know, all of these things. And it's like, you really need an expert, someone who really understands to be able to discern whether or not a space is healthy or not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and with the well-building standard, which is just an option that people can pursue uh, that kind of lays out uh, the intent of those particular strategies and yeah. kind of puts some quantifiable metrics to it uh, can really help designers build or develop a space that encompasses uh, a way to optimize that. Hmm. And there's various strategies that you can do to achieve the the, the, the intent or the goal yeah. of the, the feature or the credit. Um, and I think a lot of times people, you know, like I mentioned before, they just discounted because it's not, it's something that is hard to quantify in practice, even after the space is built out hmm. um, from a long-term standpoint. 
Now, now, typically for projects that are pursuing that particular certification, they have people co that come in, they do testing with you know meters and things of that nature to make sure that you're achieving those levels. Mm -hmm. But again, if you don't have the policies in place, whether it be from a maintenance standpoint or a purchasing policy standpoint to make sure that that's continued, then like any other building that's built to high performance standards that's not maintained, it's okay. gonna degrade over time. Um, and so, I think in the near future, that's going to be more and more important uh, that buildings have that capability, especially from just a um, a monitoring standpoint. Like if you if you were able to see on the wall a display that showed the CO2 level, you know, VOCs, particulate matter, um, uh, chemicals, things of that nature that are in this space, you would be more mindful, and that would also put more accountability on the facilities manager or the owner of that building as well, right? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, it's cool. I mean, like, I think the only monitor that I've seen, I mean, you know, going into like a store where you can buy like a hardware store is basically like a carbon monoxide alarm where it's like if <laughs> carbon monoxide gets to an outrageous number, then it'll go off. But otherwise I have no idea what my air quality is like. And thankfully I've never had the alarm go off. So, you know, in my mind, I live in a healthy, uh, the quality of space, the quality of air in the space I live in is healthy because carbon monoxide alarm has never gone off. But what you're saying is there's a bunch of other things sounds like that. Um, what it's yeah, like that are yeah, a I mean, concern. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If there's a little thing that's like, uh, you're a bit above average, like that's not really good. <laughs> I mean, the first thing we do is like go knocking on someone's door and be like, excuse me, why is, uh, why is that number higher than it should be? Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't want that. Fix that. Um, that's really cool. So, all of these things led you to um, starting your own podcast, and that's the the three P theory podcast. Um, yeah. The first question, actually, I wanted to know, which is a little bit less about the the podcast and more about the name. What is three P? Uh, so the three P came about because with sustainability. For it to really work, uh, you really need to be able to to bridge the gaps and um, use the collective um, strategies on the profit side, the people side, and also the planet side or environmental side. Oh, that's cool. When it comes to um, it, really anything, whether it's design related, whether it's um, you know manufacturing or uh, fashion industry related, mm -hmm. uh, is bringing all those together. Um, uh, I would say equally, but I know that may not always be the case. Yeah. Um, as a part as a part of the stakeholders for developing that project or developing uh, that initiative. That's um, really so. Cool. Yeah. So three P came out of that. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I I haven't heard actually of the Profit People Planet, but it makes a lot of sense. And it's something that I feel like I've been alluding to and trying to sort of describe that you know you you need profit is such an important part of of it this is. whole thing. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think for, there's a, yeah, it's easy to think, well, we should be a little bit more idealistic, but ultimately, I mean, the way our culture is designed, like money is important and it's a yeah. big consideration. So may as well work towards that. And that's kind of what we were talking about earlier about, um, uh, you know, just leading with the financial benefits of being environmentally sustainable. Right. So, and one of the things people don't talk about as well, and this is kind of leaning on the environmental side, um, is you know what are the what is what is the owner or what is the facility's liability or risk that they're putting themselves in by doing what they're doing now, 
um, and how that'll impact them in the future. Mm. Uh, so for instance, uh, on some projects, we even do uh, future climate weather files to see how the building will perform 25 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, considering the projections of climate change uh, and all the other factors. And so then we can wow. kind of build some resiliency into the building uh, for more long-term because uh, ultimately buildings are, are are meant to last for a long time, right? Yeah. And so being able to, you know, minimize the risk and more or less protect that investment for the owner. So even if they sell it off to someone else. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of, um, did you see when there was that massive hurricane in Florida, that one building that was hurricane proof? It was like category four, whatever it was, hurricane proof. And like, there's just a photo and everything is, everything else is completely flattened. And the only thing that happens to this building is like one little part of it sort of like broke off, but otherwise it was yeah. perfect. That's, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff I guess that you can, you can help with. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and awesome. especially, I mean, in areas like that where insurance is already pretty significant. Yeah, so it's, Yeah. <laughs> keeping that in mind. So um, one question I, I love to ask just to, kind of as an uh, inspiration is what, what do you do like personally on a day-to-day basis aside from all the work that you're doing um, to be environmentally friendly, like, you know, when you're at home or at work? Um, one of the things I, I do pretty frequently is, is recycle. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because the apartment complex where I live, um, they don't necessarily do recycling because hmm. um, you know some multifamily project or projects have it built into where they have separate recycling, uh, and so I take it up on my my part or my duty to be able to recycle uh, paper, um, you know, any kind of um, cans and things of that nature, um, and so uh, that's kind of on a day to day. That's what I do pretty re- pretty regularly uh, when I can and when I remember. Uh, when I go to the, the grocery store or really when I go to like the convenience store, if I go to get uh, takeout food, I don't, I don't take a bag, a plastic bag. I just carry it in my hands Yeah. Uh, when I can remember. Cause I mean, you'd, you'd be surprised. Sometimes you go to the convenience store and you get a candy bar and a soda and they say, Oh, do you want a bag? And I'm like, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't need a bag just for those two items. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, obviously being just, just doing my part, knowing that it's a, just a small, a small drop in the bucket that, you know, over time. And then obviously with the collective, um, you know, as we educate others to do the same, uh, can have a big impact. Absolutely. I think that's the important thing to remember really is that, um, you know, it's little, little actions done every day that add up. And if everyone's doing it, then it does really make a big difference um, in the end. And yeah, one thing I'm, I'm learning and hearing about from many other people I've been talking to is that, you know, it's really important just to do what you can and not like get frustrated um, (laughs) by like trying to be perfect. Uh, Because I think it's really easy to get paralyzed by perfection in this space. Oh yeah, Um, for sure. And because when you start looking around, it's like you just get overwhelmed. Um, And so you just do a little bit at a time. Um, Yeah. So that's, it's good to hear. Uh, Recycling is great. (laughs) Um, and I'm conscious of time here. So where can people learn more about your work, um, and, uh, and listen to your podcast? Yeah. So, um, on Instagram, uh, they can find me at M Charles jr. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn 
and on Twitter as well uh, as M. Charles Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with 3P Theory, we also have our website at www.3pTheory.com uh, where you can see all the episodes and there's other content from all of our our uh are all of our guests. Uh, it's uh, awesome to speak with other uh, podcasters who are who are speaking with uh, professionals in the kind of sustainability and environment environmental space. So, uh, thank you very much for for taking the time with me, Mike. It was lovely to speak with you, and really interesting to hear about what can be done with buildings to make them more uh, high performance. Awesome. I was glad to be here. Look forward to uh, catching up with you soon. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.